Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the final parsha of Leviticus uh, this week. We are finishing the middle um, hunk of Torah. And uh, so we're in Parsha Pechukotai, being the third triennial year of readings. That puts us at the end of Parsha Pechukotai, uh, which is chapter, like, part of 26 and into 27. So don't worry about where to start exactly, because we're not going to linger too long. When we look at uh, Vayikra, when we look at the book of Leviticus, the opening, I'm going to read you the opening sentence of Vayikra. The opening sentence of Vayikra says, Vayikra el Moshe, Vayedaber Adonai elav me'ohel mo'ed lemor. The first sentence is, and God called to Moshe and spoke with Moshe from the tent of meeting, saying... So from Ohel Moed, so we we haven't really talked much about this Ohel Moed. We haven't really talked about this tent of meeting business. Uh, but I want you to go to the end of Leviticus. So go to chapter 27, verse 33, 757 in the red. Very end of the Chukotai. 778 in the green. Yes? So the first verse, let's remind ourselves what I just said. Vayikra el Moshe, and God called to Moshe, Vayedaber Adonai Elav, and God spoke to him, Me'ohel Moed, from the tent of meeting. Then we get this conversation, right? We get all this stuff that's being downloaded to Moshe. Uh, and what does our last sentence say? Verse 34 says, These are the mitzvot Hashem gave Moses Moshe el Bnei Israel behar Sinai. These are the mitzvot that God commanded Moshe to command, essentially Bnei Israel, the people of Israel, behar Sinai on Mount Sinai. So, okay. So these are the words that God spoke to Moshe from Ohel Moed. These are the words, These are the things that God commanded to Moshe uh, to tell Bnei Israel, the people of Israel, from Har Sinai. In looking at a commentary on this first sentence and the last sentence of uh, Leviticus from John, Rabbi Jonathan Krauss. He says, the final words of the book of Leviticus proclaim, these are the commandments of God that God gave Moses for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. But the opening words of Leviticus say, from the tent of meeting. So where did the revelation actually happen? Like Bert said, uh-oh. Right? So where did it happen? A beautiful commentary reconciles the contradiction as follows. Sinai is not a geographic location. It is a symbol of Israel's awareness of having stood in the presence of God and having come to understand what God requires of them. Whenever a person hears the commanding voice of God and commits him or herself to live by that voice, the person can be considered to be standing at Sinai. Lovely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. So Sinai is a symbol of being called into you know, godliness and, and an understanding of what that means. It's not a location. It's not a one-time event. Okay, beautiful. What do we do? Those of us who don't believe there's a God who speaks. Now Sinai isn't just a symbol. Sinai's, in a way, a problem, right? What, what do we do who don't believe there's a location or a being capital B, that comes to that location or any location and speaks or downloads or, right? So what happens to Sinai? What happens to this symbol when it's the core of so much of what we 
bleed not bleed when it's when it's at the core of how we describe ourselves why are we in relationship to this text we all say Sinai right we're the people who this is for whatever Sinai means this is a sacred text for us we are called into relationship to this text because it in some way instructs us about what it means to be a godly people a people living lives of holiness okay what is Sinai then for us? We're coming up on the holiday of Shavuot. 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 If you grew up in certain circles, Shavuot. <laughs> if you grew up on the right, Shavuot. So we're coming up on Shavuot, and um, and what does Shavuot celebrate? What is what do we commemorate on Shavuot? Ice cream. <laughs> Dairy products, yes. Not shouldn't be the favorite holiday of the Jews just for that. Right? Giving so, the Torah. Receiving the Torah. Receiving the Torah. Sinai. Right? For us, this is the Sinaitic experience. It is our reenactment by staying up and studying Torah all night. It is our reenactment of preparing to receive Torah in the morning. Again, what do we do if we don't believe there's a God who's going to give anything on a mountain or ever did. What do we do as progressive, as liberal, however you want to talk about it, Jews, who are very attached to these symbols, who are very attached to these moments, capital M, and yet don't believe they happened or happened the way we you know, right, are taught as young children? Um, that is a question about how do we approach holidays like Shavuot? How do we approach the issue of revelation? How do we talk about that? If we're going to be intellectually honest, and we don't always have to be, but when we, when we are, what do we mean? How, how is it any different than Passover? So it's exactly the yeah. same issue. It's amazing conversation about did the Exodus Happen. So then you can bring that conversation to bear on the conversation we're having today, mm-hmm. which is, did Sinai happen? And if it didn't, what does that mean? And if it did, in what way did it? <clears throat> Do is not the question tell me. just did it or does it? Ah, so, ah. right? So, prosactly. Prosactly. Yes and yes. The common core of Sinai today and the Sinai in our book is the community of Jews coming together and feeling united around the book, whatever, of, however we interpret it. And however we got it. And <laughs> yeah, and especially at the first of the year, Rosh Hashanah, I always feel connected to Sinai because I feel like my ancestors were there. I didn't have to be there because they were there. And 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 why Rosh Hashanah? Because you're looking around at all the Jews everybody. gathered again. Yeah, because everybody who doesn't come all year is there. <laughs> the Christers, as my pastor friends say, the Christers, the Christmas and Easter Jews. <laughs> their their people who come twice a year come Christmas and Easter, and so they refer to those congregants as Christers. Um, so when our Christers come, we see them Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, right? So it's it's very different. The flavor, right, is of gathering is very different when there's that many of us mm-hmm. in the room because it doesn't happen except twice a year. And also, you're thinking about the whole year, the year that's passed, the year that's coming. It, it has a weight. Nice. I think we can still take part of the idea and study Torah that night, and you know, as no matter what you believe, it came from Sinai or it's our book. It's a nice time to refresh your studying of Torah activity and write a recommitment in a way, yeah. like um, to learning. I was going to say that I remember I made a comment that some of my students saying that. We all need to go to Sinai once a year, minimum, in order to to do some introspection and figure out where we're at and what we should be doing. It's a call for that, that's the way I look at it. And so, 
When you say we all need to go to Sinai, what does that mean? We need to, to be quiet, we need to be together, and we need to rethink our lives and the way we, we live. And what, you know, to, to make some, some order into our own um, psyche and our own way of behaving. So, in, in that sense, what I hear you saying is Sinai is not about what happens with the divine at all. It's about, and in a way Sarah was saying this, that it's about what happens to the community. That because we gather there, that's the, that's the power of Sinai. And it's about what, what our purpose is in gathering there that makes it holy. And forget about what actually like happens, right? It, it's about what's happening for us. Okay, Barbara? But even if you don't believe in anything, even if you're just the most determined, determinedly non-believing person, still, people talk about that still quiet voice or intuition or they don't know where they got this idea. I mean, isn't, even if, I don't know where to take it up. Nah. <laughs> Moses was a real person or not a, let's say he was a real person just the sake of argument even if it didn't come from somewhere else it came from somewhere some deep interior well that's the best I can do yeah. <laughs> so, so part of what I see you struggling with is the fact that we're talking about stuff that is ineffable so your frustration is wait I'm trying to express something about this and I can't express it in words because that is the nature of the business that we're talking about it is by definition ineffable and we don't we don't have good language right language is a pointer but that's all it is is a pointer anything we talk about is metaphor right because to really get at what we're talking about there aren't there aren't really great Analytical, you know, because language is about how we analyze things. There isn't great language for it, so I just want to—I want to encourage your frustration. <laughs> I went to a funeral yesterday of my last surviving uncle, and I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of it and process it in my head. And I'm thinking maybe this was a Sinai moment. This, this was an uncle who had two children who he abandoned when they were when they were very young and really had very little attachment to any family and we had this they had this funeral yesterday at Hillside Memorial Park. His two children were there with their children and I didn't know any of these people. They didn't know about me and I didn't I didn't know about them. And it was, and I'm still trying to, but it was, and they had, these people had no religion really in their lives. It, this was something that my uncle, before he died, arranged for himself and sort of sent out the, the invitations, I guess you would say. It was a, such a strange thing. So he called you all there. He called us all there. <laughs> and, and after he was gone. Yes. Wow. <laughs> right? And we didn't know each other. Yet we were all there and there was something. I, I've been thinking about this all day yesterday and today. It was, it was something it was the best funeral I've ever been to. It was a sort of a redemptive kind of a thing. So you didn't know these people, no. and yet you were connected to these yes. people, right? Yes. And there's this one of my favorite things I've told you before, this group before, but um, that you know, the I worked at a Jewish nursing home, and you know, the elderly, um, several of them there, you know, if you said. You know, do I know you? They would say, of course, from Sinai. <laughs> right? So I don't know you, but I'm connected to you because of Sinai. However, if we didn't have the word Sinai, or we didn't have the story of Passover, would we be still saying the same thing and calling it a different word? Or of Sinai, would we be saying um, seven? <laughs> or, uh, 
know, the ditch or the, the, the word Sinai comes from um, a story or a mythology or a revelation. And we use that word to create our inner uh, introspection. But it, it's the root on which we balance our mythological or our spiritual thinking. Mm. Yes. Yes. Um, if, you take, if you take a look at the word Israel, it's those who struggle with God. And I think everybody in this room and pretty much everybody has a neshama, which is the type of soul that yearns to know the unknowable. And we take a look, what we're talking about, the progressive Jew who doesn't believe this stuff literally. We take a look at the my, my favorite joke about the guy who eats a, a bacon-encrusted shrimp on uh, Yom Kippur in front of the shul, and the rabbi comes out, and he says, Mazel tov, you're celebrating Yom Kippur in your way, and I'm celebrating Yom Kippur in my way, but we are both celebrating, because the guy did it, because the neshama, the part, was yearning for for a symbol, for an expression, for an action that connected, even if it was, you know, the proverbial finger, because there was still that connection, that struggle with God, with the unknowable. So I think that the fact that you and me and everybody here is having this conversation, that is Sinai, that is the struggle with the unknowable, and that's what this is all based on. Beautiful. Some of us would have knocked it out of his hand, but that's another thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> on Yom Kippur in front of the shul, really? On Yom Kippur or otherwise. Um, but uh, so I love what everybody said and taking little pieces of it. You know, I mean, to me, uh, you know, Sinai was, you said, it's a Sinai moment. And the Sinai moment isn't necessarily when Torah was given. I mean, the Sinai moment is, I mean, you're in the desert. I mean, the people are at a crossroads. And, you know, I think we have, I have Sinai moments all the time. And they're usually moments that whether I'm struggling with God or I'm struggling with anything in my life where you're at a crossroads. Um, and sometimes you're facing adversity, right? I mean, remember when the Israelites were there, and they were catching and complaining, and they were questioning their faith in God. And that's a Sinai moment. Yeah. Uh, so I think that um, I think that um, just like the Exodus, you know, whether it happened or not, and whether you're liberal, progressive, or conservative, David Wolpe, you know, who questioned that, that's not the issue. I mean, Exodus represents freedom, something for us as Jews, and the Sinai moment. Um, it's a very deep thing for all of us in our own personal ways. It's, it's interesting that two of you have talked about struggling, and like you talk about the challenge of their faith, that that's a Sinai moment, and the paradigmatic experience of Sinai is the moment they don't doubt, right? The, the moment they are in clear communication, in clear relationship, and it's so funny that we as Jews are like, you know, when you doubt and you push back and you don't know, that's a Sinai moment. It's like, it's so Jewish. Maybe, maybe, I, don't, I don't know if there's, there's, it's hard to say there's right or wrong, right, in Torah study. Right, of course. But, but for me, the Sinai moment is not Shavuot. It's not the revelation. The Sinai moment is the 40 years. I mean, the entire time is the Sinai moment. I mean, they are, you know, it's the metaphor of wandering in the desert and being uncertainty. It's the golden calf. It's the, it's, you know, Moses and striking the rock. It's like all these different things that were going on. Um, and it's you know okay so now we're out of Egypt you know oh crap what do we do now it's, you know it's it's, it's it's all about questioning. So the Sinai is a process in that for sense. Me, for me, the Sinai moment is more. I mean, it's, it's more of the process and the struggle and the adversity and the exper experiential aspects of just life's not easy as opposed to revelation of the, the Ten Commandments. David. Amy, there's a really interesting piece in the Houses of God uh, section in the Wall Street Journal today about Christopher Hitchens after he had uh, found that he had terminal cancer driving in a car with a person who was opposite his point of view and then talking frankly about now his Sinai moment. Was he having a Sinai moment at the end of his uh, 
life, not so much that he believed in God, but there was that ineffable need to believe in something. And I think that's what that is to me, is a need to believe. Mm-hmm. In something and I think so every bigger. human has some need to believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the Sinai moment that we're trying to pin down here <laughs> the moment when we received direct communication in the Torah, is that the moment where we receive direct communication from the beyond? I don't know what else to call it. And, and how do we explain that to somebody, or what is the point of this if, if we don't believe that that was true? Well, thank you, Barbara, for bringing us back to the point. Um, I, I didn't quite anticipate this much conversation, which is fabulous and amazing. Um, so yeah, I think my, my question starts from a place of what do we mean when we even say Sinai, if we don't believe, right, that, that, that that's a moment where there was anything. Right, that, what, what, so what does it mean for us you know, as progressive Jews to say revelation? What does it mean Torah is revelation if we don't believe in a being that reveals things, right? So some of us struggle with these questions, right? Like, why do I even talk to other people about Sinai when I know it's a symbol, you know, like the other person doesn't know I'm talking about a symbol. Like, what, where, where are we intellectually and philosophically in relationship to these symbols? And, um, and coming up on Shavuot, coming up on the holiday, you know, where we celebrate Revelation, like, what, what is an honest, progressive response to that? Um, and I'm going to read to you, you have it in front of you, from um, Mel Scopes. He's the, as I've said before, the um, the biographer of Kaplan. He wrote uh, the book on Kaplan's diaries. So he's got Kaplan's diaries published and his notes on those diaries from what he knows because he's an expert on Kaplan. So Kaplan, of course, is the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism. So this is Mel Skult's book on the radical American Judaism of Mordecai Kaplan. Um, and you know that you're invited to my home, Arab Shavuot. To hear uh, Dr. Skult uh, talk about this uh, about this topic about what, what day? Cap- uh, Saturday night, the twelfth. Think it's Right, It's two days since we'll be studying all night. Just kidding. Um, all right, so go to go to 119. It should be the first page you have, yeah? Um, and go to the bottom the, of the right side of the page where it says the epitome of permanent belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The epitome of a permanent belief or dogma in traditional Judaism, traditional Judaism, is the assertion that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. The divine origin of Judaism's essential laws is fundamental to the religion. Traditionally, okay? We're talking about traditionally. The next sentence. If the Torah is a late document, right? We've talked about the dating of P. We've talked about post-exilic. We've talked about when was this all really written and all put together. If the Torah is a late document, perhaps even written or edited by Ezra after the exile, as Arnold Ehrlich and other critics posited, then the revelation at Sinai turns out to be a myth. Moses, the Exodus, all the events of early Israelite history are shrouded in ancient prehistory, right? Ancient prehistory, and we can't know really anything about them because all this other stuff is written about it, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, that's shrouded in ancient prehistory and cannot be considered to be real historical events in any significant sense. Okay, most of us seem very comfortable with that statement, mm-hmm. right? Most of us in here are like, okay, so duh, what, so, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. right? All right, so not everybody, by the way, would be comfortable with that statement. Some people would take this book outside and burn it because that is heresy, mm-hmm. right? To say the Exodus never happened, to say Moses didn't exist, to say Revelation never happened is heresy. So what are you sitting around this table for? If not, right? That is where a lot of people go. Huh? Lots. Lots of folks. They burned the 1945 prayer book. When, Cap, when that prayer book was published, it was burned by 
You're talking about Jews. Jews people burn. Jews Jewish burned people burn. that prayer book in the streets mm-hmm. as heresy. Right, but I'm, in this day and age, I mean, are even any of the ultra orthodox out there burning books? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was a metaphor. <laughs> it was a symbol right, for the reaction of what some people. We just sit around the table going, "Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. right." There are lots of Jews who, if they read, if they heard us read that out loud, would go, "What are you talking about?" Right. So I just want to note that y'all are like, "Okay, yeah, get on with it." And I'm like, "That's a radical statement in black and white that we're all like mm-hmm, nodding to." Right. All right. So go to the next paragraph. Despite the vast disruption caused by biblical criticism, we've been talking a lot about biblical criticism in here. Biblical criticism is the documentary hypothesis where you have this source and this source and this source. They're written at different times with different agendas. Then they're stuck together, right, by a redactor. That whole business, when that happened, lots of folks in the Jewish world were like, wait, wait, right? It's really, you need to argue against that. This all came from Sinai. What are you talking documentary? What? what? This all came from Sinai at the same time. So, so that caused huge disruption when the field of biblical criticism was really opening up. Kaplan believed that a middle path was possible. Though Kaplan accepted the assumptions of the biblical critics, he still insisted on the preeminence of the Torah. Indeed, Kaplan believed that the critics did not undermine the significance of the Torah, meaning those people who want to pull it apart and say which, when each part was written. He didn't think that undermined the significance of Torah. In a path-breaking article in 1914, he made it clear that for him, function determined value, not origin. Function, how Torah functions, is its value, not where it came from or how it got here. No matter what the origin of the Torah, if it continued to function as the center of Jewish life and belief, then the assumption that it was late does not undermine its holiness. Amen. 100%, right? Amen. How is this different than Reform Judaism? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a hard question, partly because I'm not a scholar of Reform Jewish thinking. The other reason it's hard is really the differences between Reform and Reconstructionist Judaism in its infancy were not significant. That you know, it wasn't a huge difference. Kaplan actually did not want to start a new movement. He resisted till the age of 83. He taught at JTS, the conservative seminary, for his whole career. He taught conservative rabbis. He was orthodox in practice until his death at 101. He stayed orthodox in practice and taught at the conservative seminary. Reform wasn't really part of his, you know, gestalt. He... Reconstructionist Judaism broke off of the conservative movement. So it was a response to Kaplan and his students feeling they could no longer stay within a movement where they really had to say, whether it happened at Sinai or not, if they really couldn't stay in a movement anymore where they had to pretend that they believed this was the will of God. Does the conservative movement think that? People, if they're pushed to the wall, Mm -hmm. yes. That that God cares what we eat, whether we eat bacon or not, if they're pushed to the wall, that's what happened. He got pushed to the wall. And he couldn't say that whether it's intuited by human beings or blah, 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 blah. Yes, this is what God wants. Kaplan couldn't say that. And his students couldn't say it anymore. They really did not believe that God cares what we eat because they don't have a God who thinks. They don't have a God who cares. They don't have a being. Kaplan was a transnatural, right? His God is transnatural, not supernatural. That was a big difference. What's the difference? So, and it's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. So if you have a God that is in relationship to the world, oh, great. 
Right? We're mocking. Um, Scotch, we're all the best. Yeah, really. Just because I'm about to write heresy. Uh, if you have, right, if you have the world, right, a supernatural God is is outside of that and punctuates it. It's not that God's not in relationship to the world or part of the world, but God is supernatural, not related to the natural cosmos. Um, it's other. God is other in that sense. For Kaplan, this is God. And so the world exists within the divine. The divine is a dimension past the world, but is fully, right, in the world. So it's it's transnational, meaning bigger than the sum of all the parts, but not other, and doesn't then act on the world. Right? God is not other that then acts on the world by going, I'm going to go down to Sinai and tell these people what I think. There, there, isn't, there isn't a consciousness or a being to make that decision in Kaplan's theology. God is of this world, in this world, permeates everything about this world, and is bigger than the cosmos. Is bigger than what we can know, but is not supernatural. How did he reconcile this with his practice, with his orthodox practice? So, what we're exploring here, I guess part of why this interests me, is that question. Because I think whatever we're going to say right now in Kaplan's theology about Sinai, we could say about praxis. We could say about kashrut. We could say about... Shabbos. Mm-hmm. We could say about anything he did as a practice. We plug in mm-hmm. that for Sinai, and I think that's what we're talking about. How do you still have a deep, serious relationship with this stuff when you don't believe in a God who could give it? Or a God who cares what we mm-hmm. eat? How do I have a serious relationship to Kashrut if I don't think God cares what I eat is significant? Because there's not a God who can care. Right? So for the other thing to know is that Kaplan talked in this kind of language. God is the power, capital P, that makes for fill in the blank. God is the power that makes for salvation. God is the power that makes for freedom, capital F. God is the power that makes for transformation, capital T. God is the power that makes for healing, capital H. That's how Kaplan talked about God. God is the power that enables us to transform ourselves. God is the power that allows for people to step into freedom, right? And imagine something different than slavery and what they are supposedly given. Linda? Rather, rather, at least the way I perceive this, rather than God being out there and telling us this, get it from deep within and... The more you dwell on that, the more you can relate to God for whatever power. Wow. So, um, so going back, I don't want to spend too long on it because, again, I'm not an expert on it. But so, so Kaplan was concerned about dialogue with the conservative movement. He was very serious about praxis. Praxis was very important to him and to his students. So, praxis was not going to leave. You know, that Reformed Jews didn't care about praxis. Kashrut, who cares? It's superstitious mumbo jumbo from a book that whatever, that we're actually frankly a little embarrassed by. The parts that we lift up out of it are the moral lessons that we can be a light unto the nations in sharing. And let's just kind of skip all this, especially Leviticus. Let's just skip that and let's go to Amos and Jeremiah. So so what Reform Judaism lifted up in the Age of Reason, capital R, was ethical monotheism. That was their moniker. Ethical monotheism. They turned to the prophets. So lifted up Haftarah, lifted up, you know, um, sermonizing from the prophets who talked about moral issues. And, and they weren't very interested. No talit, no kippah, no kashrut, no, right? So get rid of all that superstitious stuff. You know, and let's live into the real 
the real teachings of ethical monotheism that we can be proud about, we children of the age of reason. Cap, that just made no sense to Kaplan and his students. I'm not, not, I mean, they understood it, but like, they were not embarrassed by Leviticus, right? They, they did what we do in here, which is, and now that the reform, now the reform movement's doing it. How do we reconstruct Leviticus? How do we, can we reconstruct the practice of wearing talit if we don't believe God told us to wear tzitzit? What is the meaning of it if we don't believe that? Then how do we reconstruct it in a way that continues to give shape and meaning to our lives? Those were the central questions to them. The reform movement was ignoring those questions. Then. I'm not saying they do that now, but then. So they were just two completely separate conversations, right? And reform Jews were not Zionist at that point. Kaplan was an ardent Zionist, as were his followers. Um, and so he actually wanted at some point when he was clear they needed to leave the conservative movement, they considered going to the reform movement because he did not want to splinter the Jewish people further. But they were not Zionist. They and so he and what, he couldn't do it. And in what year was this? Thirties, forties, um, when he's really writing his you know magnum opus, and uh, and so his students are the ones that pushed. They pushed him and pushed him till he finally retired from the conservative seminary at 83 and founded the Reconstructionist movement. He did it with a very heavy heart. And, and, and is this a totally American Judaism? It is the only completely American Judaism. Reconstructionist Judaism is the only Judaism to emerge on American soil. He did not believe that it was for anybody else, by the way. Kaplan did not believe this was portable. He believed maybe the way you look at tradition and reconstruct it is portable, but this Judaism, he believed was for American Jews only. Why? Why? Not for the Because we are formed by a very specific set of beliefs and myths and experiences as Americans and I it's very interesting that you asked it when I when I went to Israel and I was studying in Israel and living there for a year um, I lived in Beersheba I chose not to go to Jerusalem and I chose to go to a secular university because I wanted to learn about Israelis like really real Israelis not people studying at Hartman you know I love Hartman I was like I wanted real Israelis who were just there for graduate school and I lived with them or whatever so we would have these conversations, and first of all, they looked at me like I had three heads. When, like a rabbi, what are you, A, what are you even talking about? If you don't believe Torahs from Sinai, what are you doing here? Like, you know, if the exodus didn't happen, like, wh- who are you? Like, what are you talking about? These are people who didn't believe it necessarily. They were completely secular Jews. But if you're going to do anything Jewish, you've got to believe the whole thing, or, or it's ridiculous. Like, what are you? How do you say you don't believe that, and yet you're studying Torah? Like, what that makes it blew their minds, made no sense to them. But even when they kind of started to get it a little bit, they weren't shaped by American mythology. They had a different response to some of these texts than I had as an American. That is what Kaplan believed should happen. That. That, that I walk in two civilizations equally, the American civilization and the Jewish civilization equally, and they inform each other. That's how it should be, he thought. That's his whole, that's Reconstructionist Judaism. At, boil it down, that's what it's about. We walk in two civilizations, and those inform each other. And he thought they were both gorgeous. And they should, the best of each of them should inform the, the not-so-great about the other. In other words, Judaism has a lot to learn from democracy, from gender equality. He believed that was a great thing, that our American identity was being brought to bear on our Jewish sensibilities, right? And to say, wait a minute, why are women behind a mechitza? What's up with that? He believed that was a great thing. He also felt our Judaism should inform how we vote. Yeah. Right? Like our... Our Jewish values and our Jewish ways of understanding things and struggling with things should inform who we elect as the president of the United States. Wait, they thought women behind him against that is a great thing? No. 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 That our American right. sense of democracy and outrage at treating right. people 
as other or second class citizens, he thought it was fantastic that our American sensibilities were leading us to criticize things about our Jewish practice that were not in line with those democratic values. He thought that was the best. And, and therefore, someone in France is going to have to have a different reconstructionism because they're walking in French society and Jewish civilization at the same time. They've got one foot in each, or in Spain, or in Morocco, right? That it's going to look different there because they're walking in a different civilization that's commenting and in dialogue with Jewish civilization. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And so he believed this reconstructionist business, the way we have it, and his writings, was only for Americans. Wow. So when I, it, it, is, it has allowed me in those conversations with Israeli friends who a lot of them were very loud <laughs> discussions. <laughs> Can you imagine? And the minute I start talking Hebrew, it's like, like I just amp up. Like so, um, so we would argue. We'd have these knockdown, dragout fights, and then at some point, I was able to just kind of go, "Okay," because you're Israelis, so it doesn't make any sense to you. Fine, because you're dealing with a whole other civilization. You're dealing with a whole other set of issues. Okay. Like, it really, truly freed me, eventually, not quickly, or quietly, but eventually, I, you know, that, that tenet of Reconstructionist Judaism really did live strongly in me to say, okay, I get it that you don't get it, because you live in Israel. Why would you get this? Right? You live in a crazy relationship to Jewish tradition that I don't have to worry about or deal with, and I have my own ways of understanding this because I'm an American. Okay. Right? And, and he, he firmly believed that, that we're not trying to transport this somewhere else and make it work somewhere else. It's our obligation as American Jews to live into the best of our two civilizations and have them be in real dialogue. So when you say he believed in egalitarian and not the Mahitsa, why weren't women ordained as rabbis in this movement from day one? Um, I, don't, I don't think that they weren't N- not or they. I don't think it's that they weren't or they, I don't think they went to study. They want. Oh yeah. So in the reconstructionist movement, I think Sandy wanted. Yeah. In the so then then I don't know. It wasn't until the seventies. I don't know, um, because it would not have been ideological. Right. So th- it might have been, been practical. Been it might have been like other things that it's like like what do you, you know like. Gays and lesbians, right? We didn't have right away the same rights and responsibilities as other Jews, but we were the first movement. Kaplan, right, was the first to bat mitzvah his daughter, Judith. So they're human, flawed. Um, so I don't know what the ideological you know, reason would be to turn women away from seminary. I don't know. But I do know that we were the first in all the really big ways the first movement uh, I, you know and we can have this conversation okay. but I, I don't think that's true so um, so in really important ways I I think reconstructionists were the thought leaders on that stuff well if reconstructionism means walking two civilizations at the same time I don't think we had any people when was Geraldine for I mean women weren't elected to any Offices in America before the city. Isn't that correct? Or is so, it real if they were so I, a miracle? Yeah, so I think that's, I don't think it's ideological. I think it was, there are things right that, you know, in American society we weren't represented the way we should have been. And, and Kaplan and his people were formed by that America, you know, that, that wouldn't have had women rabbis or doctors or whatever it was. Would, would, you mentioned that this is obviously peculiarly American, but wouldn't Kaplan have thrived in France or Britain? Yes. And so why didn't something like that happen? Because if you read the next paragraph that you have on outline, it just seems very clear that this is what Kaplan was saying when it starts with, nonetheless, and then the indented part. You would see this in any Western civilized society. Not necessarily. So, so limit it just to America. Then no, no, no. it's so maybe I misspoke. It's not limited to America. He just wasn't interested in trying to put this in France. Mm -hmm. He didn't care. 
Let the French do what they want to do. Let the French reconstruct Jewish tradition the way they want to do it. Our job as Americans is to be as honest as we can about our struggle to reconstruct so he, he our tradition. Warrior. He really didn't want to start a war. Correct. Correct. He just had no interest in moving this any further. Than he was very interested in staying honest to his beliefs, his beliefs and articulating his yeah. philosophy for those people who were inspired by it. Exactly. And he wanted to redeem the tradition for people who didn't believe in a supernatural God. And he wanted to write the opus for them about how they could feel proud about that and still be serious Jews. And that's what he cared about. His students wanted a movement. So, um, first... I have to thank you, because this is the most impactful and informative discussion I've heard on Reconstructionist Judaism, and I've been a member here a lot longer than you. Um, but in response to your comment, I, this is really part of why it resonates with me, is, and, and the answer to your question about why America is, I think America is a unique country where this really had an opportunity to thrive. And some of the unique aspects of it, I mean, if you look back to the founding of our country, I mean, you know, our, our founding fathers were such that they were religious people. You know, the country was founded in a Judeo-Christian set of values. Um, they understood the concept of God given inalienable rights, yet there was a clear separation of church and state. Um, and you know, our separation of church and state is different than what's happened in Europe and what's happened in Israel. Right? You can have pure theocracy, you can have a pure secular democracy, or you can have you know, something kind of in between. And I, I think that part of the American values really speaks to, to what you talked about with Kaplan, where saying, you know what, it really can inform us. We can believe that the the you know the, the God is infused in all of this, and this this is a holy book. It is a holy code, and that's okay. We can really live as okay, you know. But that's different from how they look at it in Israel, and you know it's different than how they look at the French as a Catholic country. You know, in the UK, they they've got the Queen of England as the head of the church. So I think that that to me, that's why this was particularly um, an American enterprise that was able to really prosper. Um, very very well said. Wouldn't he have been a close friend of John? Yeah. In in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, yes, they would have had a lot to say to each other. I think it's much broader than that. He just didn't want to move this out. He wanted to keep it and cherish what he saw as the need here in his life. Yes. His students wanted to move it out. Yes. And, and not outside the country, but outside the conservative yeah. movement. They, together, right. right. Yeah. I don't know that you really answered Bird's question of why did he why continue to practice as an Orthodox Jew. Um, so it goes really to the heart of the relationship of Reconstructionism to all of this business. Okay, so when I answered him by saying substitute practice for Sinai, what I meant was every place it says it wasn't given by God, that doesn't diminish its centrality to us. You could say the same thing about Kashrut for Kaplan. Eating, not eating pork, was not about what God wants. It's not God's will. It's not better than if you do. It has nothing to do with that for Kaplan. For him... This is how Jews have expressed their connection to Judaism and to Jewish identity for millennia. That has a value that is supreme for Kaplan, that I am making a positive identification with Jews and Jewish history and identity every time I eat. That was very important to Kaplan. He believed the discipline of saying no to something, just to say no, was an important discipline to cultivate at every meal. And having two sets of dishes was how his grandmother did it. And he honored that commitment. He honored what that took. He honored that that was something beyond reason in a good way. That, That it wasn't rational. It was beyond that. And a real commitment to that which you don't exactly explain and the, but it's about holiness in everyday life, that was critically important to Kaplan. 
And he was deeply attached to all of those ways of being and behaving in the world. And he said, you know, behaving, you know, belonging comes before believing and it leads to behaving, right? So behavior was important to him. The tradition had, had a very big voice in his world. And he didn't need to, what I love about Kaplan is that he didn't need to give up kashrut in being honest and saying, God doesn't care what we eat, but we should. Right? He, he flipped the whole thing upside down, and it didn't change his deep commitment. Right, so, so those Israelis I was arguing with were saying to me, why do you bother with any of this business? You don't believe it. They believed more than I did. Right? They believed in Sinai. They just don't do any of it. <laughs> they believed it was God's will, and they're breaking God's will. Right? I'm like, How, then, then why aren't you orthodox? Right? So we just could not, you know, but what they couldn't get is that because I don't believe it's a supernatural God who says this or wills this, that it's any less important to me or precious to me. And that is, that is brilliant, I think. I saw a hand. Robert. Well, back when we, about half an hour ago, when we started this conversation. <laughs> I know, I've gotten very uh, far. I've gotten very far. I thought it was very succinctly uh, made clear when you read the line, you know, in, in this article in 1914, that where you said that function determined value, not origin, which is just what you were talking about. So, we could argue about the whole Torah even being mythical, but it is our holy book. And he, I guess when he was writing, we have to remember that was like, people would have scratched their heads and right. said, I can believe that. why? Like, if God didn't give it, how is it holy, right? Like, right. I'm glad that we're kind of like, well, okay, duh, Amy, can you move on? Like, that's great that we live in a time where it's like, duh. It's holy. It doesn't have to come from God to be holy, right? But, but this was radical. That's why it says, you know, the radical American Judaism. That was a radical idea in the world. It's radical now. It's right? <laughs> to some people, it's, it's radical now, right? Who, who want to say that I pick and choose, right? It's like, well, <laughs> that, that's another conversation. All right, look, look at page one twenty-two. Yes. Margo's had her hand up. Margo, you're going to have to make some noise over there. That's right. And uh, Robert took my, some of my words away. Oh, see? Oh, not see? That, but he said about a half hour ago, I was going to say about 15 minutes ago, we were discussing the God business in terms of uh, how important it is to some Jews to be able to, to have this God that they believe in. Um, and a number of uh, years ago, I was on jury duty, and there were, and I think I mentioned this the last time we were studying Leviticus, but there was a an Iranian woman, and she and I, Jew, an Iranian Jew, and she and I had were having some conversations during our downtime, and I gave her the next day when I saw her some information about Reconstructionism because at that time I was working for the movement and I was sort of proselytizing. (laughs) So she read all, you know, what I gave her, some Reconstructionist magazines and whatever. And so uh, she came back to me and she says, you know, everything makes sense except don't take away my God. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to say you know, saw this. It just was so important to her. She wasn't an American Jew. She was an Iranian right. Jew. And, and Kaplan, <coughs> Kaplan was deeply attached to God also. What he couldn't do was live with the implications of what that woman wants. Because from that, it sounds innocent, but what flows from that mm-hmm. is that homosexuals can be stoned. Or, in other words, it's lovely to say, okay, I just need my belief. Don't take it from me. But Kaplan was like, but if you believe that, then there's a lot of things that flow from there that are unacceptable to us who are, right, contemporary American. There's a lot of gradations. Isn't that why you have, you've got the Haredi, right, and you've got Orthodox and modern Orthodox, and you've got you know, more observant conservatives, and you've got, you know, when Schulweiss took the movement, and... 
that so it's I mean to, to go from if you believe in God I'm stoning homosexuals is like again a big my point is there are things that flow from I need to believe that God gave this at Sinai even though I don't believe it I need to believe it don't take that God away from me that talks to human beings if you really if you're going to hang on to that there are things that flow from there that are unacceptable to Kaplan's honesty about that then okay so the homosexual one pick another one pick a less hyperbole one Marrying outside the faith. Marrying outside the faith. Eating shrimp. Whatever it is, if you really are going to hang on to that God, there are things that flow from there that intellectually we cannot support. And and that, he refused to budge on intellectual honesty. He refused to budge, and it got him in a lot of trouble. Yeah, but isn't that saying, I mean, then, then I don't know, it just it seems like it's either... But I understand your argument, and I understand Kaplan's concern, but I just think that there's there's great, there's great levels of observance, and there's a whole lot of, of Jewish people in the world who still want to hold on to that God that that Iranian woman wanted to hold on to, who may not follow all the halakha, who may not read the Torah literally. There's lots to do, but there's plenty that don't. There's lots of gray for Kaplan, and I'm just talking Kaplan. I'm not talking me. Kaplan would have said, yeah, there's lots of gray in lots of stuff. There's no gray about supernatural versus transnatural. It is black and white. Either you believe in a supernatural God or you don't. And there was no equivocating right, so my, for him. My final point on this is like, I'm okay with him saying either you do or you don't. But for me, I'm okay if people do or don't. Right. Like, right I, if, I if they do, they do. Right? And observe what you want. Don't judge me. Don't judge others. Um, That's the point. Because the point is, he said, if you really believe that, at some point, you will judge someone else. You're not doing the will of God. If this is really the will of God, you you can't have it both ways. Either it it is or it isn't. So is there room in the movement for people who believe in God who gave the Torah? Um, I'm going to say that we are no longer pure Kaplanians. Some of us are more Kaplanian than others. So, <laughs> so we we are no longer a movement that is in line with all of Kaplan's. So yes, we're a movement that we're so we become more close. All right, last one, and then we're going to close. Kaplan, it seems that he probably was a very modest man in the way he behaved. And I'm sort of thinking from reading all of this that when it came to the question of, of uh, Kashrut and the rules, that he probably would have said, you know, in reading this book, our book, if I read it and understand it and interpret it, I'm going to behave very well. And in order to behave well, I know how important ritual is to transform behavior from just thought to action. Would that be why he would say, yes, I'm going to keep Kashrut? Not because I believe that we should be shrimp, but it helps me be a better human being. Abs- very well said. Absolutely. He believed that with his whole heart. Yeah. And he believed that Catholics should keep not eating meat on Friday. Right. For the same reason. Same reason. That what it is is made up by human beings. Right. right. But that there is something that we do that to make sense. us aware of eating, to make us aware of consumption, to make us aware of the, of the divine in our lives at every meal. That was hugely important to him because he felt it made us better people. It made us gentler, more compassionate, more reflective, more respectful of holiness. But he, for so many reasons, he believed praxis was the way to put our thought into action so that it would change our behavior for the better. It makes us more modest. It makes us, right? He truly believed 100%. And that and would completely have respected a Reconstructionist Jew who said, it's not so meaningful to me. He would have said, okay, then, then don't do that. But what is meaningful to you? If it's not kashrut, fine. But what is? If it's meaningful, do it. Correct. Don't just ignore it. Correct. And he believed we had an obligation to study where it originated, the time it originated, 
he knew Mesopotamian law. He knew Mesopotamian culture, like we do in here all the time. Our learning here is very Reconstructionist. Where did it come from? In its time, what did it mean? For us now, what does it mean? And we may not do it for the reason that it originated, but can we reconstruct the practice with a grounding now in what we believe, you know, and if so, we should try to reconstruct things from the past. And if really we can't, then let them go. It's fine. He, he was unapologetic. Let it go. But you have to let it go only after you understand its origin, what it was about, what it was for, and is there a way into that concept for us today? And if so, let's try to figure out a way to reconstruct those rituals because there are people's rituals and they've been around for a long time and it connects us to that chain of Jewish identity. Um, all right, I'll look at top of 123 and then we'll close. Talking about truth and what's real and what's historical truth versus archaeological truth, that's 122. You should read that on your own. Kaplan believed, and I think, again, you can take put, put whatever you want in here instead of Sinai. I think it's, it's, it, it's for everything. Kaplan believed that Sinai revealed the soul and mind of the Jewish people. Sinai teaches us that fundamental moral truths are in some way part of the fabric of the universe and that at the root of the Jewish belief is the conviction that morality, justice, and mercy are therefore divine. In a poetic and metaphorical, though never literal, sense, these qualities endure as the word of God. That is a beautiful statement for me about how we approach, in a Kaplanian sense, everything about this business of religion and identity and meaning. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.